0: Today in pop culture, origin stories are all the rage. From superhero flicks to space-based soap operas, fans clamor for the narrative of how heroes, villains, and increasingly their supporting characters came to be. Real life isn't really so different. Over-the-counter DNA tests now help us prove or disprove grandpa's stories about the region of the world from which your family supposedly hails, or how many members of the old nobility actually have a branch on your family tree. But just like many of your grandfather's old tales, there are entire civilizations of people throughout history whose origin stories are, well, murky at best. In the Bronze Age, a group known only as the Sea Peoples defeated and ruled over the mighty empire of ancient Egypt for a time. Scholars still debate who these mysterious maritime conquerors actually were. Even a civilization as well chronicled as that of Classical Rome, still has questions about its origins. Greek poet Homer, who may or may not even existed himself, would have us believe that those who came to be the Romans were actually descendants of the people who escaped the sack of Troy during the uh, quasi-mythical Trojan War. One culture with a pervasively mysterious origin story are a collective of people known as the Romani, you may recognize them by an older moniker, gypsies. I do need to stress that the term gypsy is now recognized as a pejorative. In fact, in 1971, the first World Romani Congress voted to reject gypsy, among many other colloquial names by which the culture was referred. A fact which we respect. For this episode, we will call those who identify with this culture Romani except in cases where using the other term is critical to the historical narrative. Please understand, there is no disrespect intended. We're from a place like that. As we said, the Romani's origins have been a mystery for their recorded history. Scientists, genealogists, historians, folklorists, they've all offered wide ranging theories over the years from the fantastical, the Romani are one of the lost tribes of Israel, to the more mundane, they're simply a conglomeration of various peoples displaced from the tribal homelands at one time or another, somewhat coalesced and evolved into a unique culture all their own. There is the Persian legend of a certain king who was saddened that the poor people of his kingdom didn't have the access to enjoy music. To remedy this, the Persian king asked an Indian counterpart to send him 10,000 lute players. Upon their arrival, the musicians were each gifted an ox, a donkey, and an amount of wheat with the understanding being that they would use these resources to start their own farms, be self-sufficient, and thus be able to provide music for the poor of the kingdom, free of charge. Why the king didn't just gift his poor subjects the oxen, donkeys, and wheat, we can't really say. Other than it doesn't make for a great story. Anyway, rather than live up to the bargain, the musicians ate the wheat and oxen when they inevitably grew hungry again. They returned to the seemingly thoughtful, if misguided, king to ask for more, but this is where his altruism ended. He became enraged and commanded that the the musicians wander the earth for the rest of their days and with their donkeys being their only form of transportation, some kind of misguided ungratefulness. I think we can all recognize that this little bit of folklore is certainly false. Genetics point to the Ramani's likely origin being in Northwest India, possibly in and around the modern region of Punjab. They spoke a Proto-Indo-European language like many other peoples of Western descent today. And like many others who eventually became the ancient tribes more familiar to us, think like the Celts, or the Goths, or the Saxons, Scandinavians, the Hellenes, and those Persians, the Romani began a diaspora that took them across lands stretching both west and east. Why this group never congealed into a land-based nation like so many others is pretty unclear. It is also unclear when Romani culture became a relatively homogenized one that designates a single people. What is known is that the Romani were spread far and wide. Today, members of the Romani nation live on all six inhabited continents, with estimates of total global population being possibly as large as 20 million. And much like so many other migrating peoples, Romani found their way to the American continents. Perhaps as many as 1 million individuals of Romani ancestry live in the United States today. These American Romani brought with them the same reputation that they had in the old world of a nomadic peoples moving from place to place. Some might call the Romani history's greatest wanderers. In fact, Mississippi's official slogan for its tourism campaign is Wanderers Welcome. The state doesn't have a sprawling theme park complex or a massive sun-baked canyon to explore. What Mississippi does offer is a wealth of authentic aspects from outdoors to art and architecture to food and drink to music. The very makeup of the state encourages visitors to wander from place to place, enjoying the myriad of varied experiences that are offered. So is it any wonder that the state made for wandering would attract the world's most prolific wanderers? eastern Mississippi city of Meridian was a railroad town in the early 20th century. The level of rail traffic running through Meridian on a daily basis helped the town grow to become the largest in the state for a period of time. It would also come to be the last resting place for royalty. Romani royalty. Emil Mitchell was born in Brazil. In and later immigrated to the United States. His clan was one of the largest among the Romani nation, which culminated in Emil being crowned King of the Romani in 1884. In late 1914, King Emil, his wife Kelly, and a number of their children, reports put the number at 13 or 14 at the time, were camped just across the border from Meridian in western Alabama. Queen Kelly was expecting the birth of another royal child, but Unfortunately, complications set in. Emile sought medical attention for his queen, but alas, it was too late. Queen Kelly Mitchell of the Romany passed away on the 31st of January 1915. The king decided she would be buried in Rose Hill Cemetery in Meridian, the closest population center to the camp. But before she bid her final farewell, the queen, as the traditional among many royal burials and leaders of nations, was laid in state. For 12 days, Queen Kelly's body could be viewed. At her funeral, records attest to over 20,000 people traveling to attend the service, which is something because, a- according to the 1910 census, the population of Meridian at the time was just a little over 23,000. Kelly Mitchell, Queen of the Romani, she literally doubled the population of the city. After her burial, Rumors cropped up that her casket was so elaborate, it was worth a small fortune. Other tales had Queen Kelly being buried with a hoard of gold coins. This has inevitably led to attempts at grave robberies, and, which, you know, inevitably damaged her gravesite. Today, people visit her resting place for a different reason. Like the voodoo queen Marie Laveau. Visitors often leave offerings on the grave of the Romani queen in the hopes that she can help them with their own problems from beyond. Among the most interesting of offerings left at the grave are cans of Crush, you know, the iconic orange soda. It is said to have been the the queen's favorite drink. Her husband survived another 27 years. When his time on earth had passed and he wandered into the uh, great beyond his mortal husk was laid rest in that very same cemetery, right beside his queen, the last king and queen of the Romani, resting peacefully, hopefully, in Meridian, Mississippi. Of course, not all wanderers are as noble or revered as Queen Kelly and King Emile. Some, in fact, are, well, downright evil. Head from East Mississippi to the western part of our state and you'll come across the Natchez Trace Parkway. The Natchez Trace, or the Trace as we call it, is a two-lane road stretching 444 miles from Nashville to Natchez, Mississippi. The road crosses Mississippi diagonally from the northeast part of the state all the way down to the southwest. The Natchez Trace is actually a, a national park with a strictly enforced speed limit of 50 miles per hour and a super prohibition against commercial vehicles. Today, the trace is one of the premier cycling destinations in the Eastern United States and is dotted with many unique historical Native American sites, including Emerald Mound, the second largest ceremonial mound in the United States. In its original incarnation, what came to be known as the Natchez Trace was a a migratory route for American bison. These bison hunted by the indigenous people of the region were followed by humans. Over time, a, a definitive footpath was traced by man and beast alike. After the Revolutionary War, traders would ship goods and flatboats down the Mississippi River and then trudge back up either by foot or horse. Many of these traders would come to use the old Natchez Trace as their pathway. Now, if you think about it, these traders had quite literally just made a boatload of money. They had sold their upriver goods in port towns like Vicksburg and Natchez and New Orleans. In the days before wire transfers, this meant that most of these traders were laden with cash. The Natchez Trace was no exception. Highway robbery was so common and legendary along the Natchez Trace that Jackson, Mississippi, the the capital of our state, and a stop along the modern-day Natchez Trace, was once home to an ice hockey team named the Jackson Bandits. Ice hockey in Jackson, Mississippi. Now, as I said, some wanderers are evil. And even among the bandits of the Natchez Trace, there is some evil that stood above others. I'd like to introduce you to the Harp Brothers. That's Harp with an E, H A R P E. They're notoriously recognized as America's first documented serial killer. And one of these brothers would make the Natchez Trace one of his favorite hunting grounds. The Harps, Micah Yah, or Big Harp, and Wiley, Little Harp, weren't actually brothers. They were cousins, but often told those that they met that they were siblings. They were born in the North Carolina colony to Scottish immigrants and left their homes in 1775 headed for Virginia, intending, apparently, to find work as slave masters. seems the Harps had a penchant for domination and violence that was insatiable. At the outbreak of the American Revolution, the Harps sided with and fought for the British as army irregulars, although it, it seems that most of their interests lie in terrorizing the local populations rather than fighting honorably for king and country. While in the act of attempting a rape on a local girl, Little Harp was shot by an officer in the regular army. He survived, unfortunately. Following the war, the Harps moved west into Appalachia, bringing in sadistic acts of rape, murder, pillaging, and torture wherever they went. I don't wanna get into all that horrific atrocities that they committed here. Let's just say that the Harps were extremely short on any redeeming qualities. Big Harp's not-soon-enough demise came in 1799. Seems the Harps were being pursued by a posse in Kentucky. After Big Harp slit the throat of an infant and its mother, the vigilantes shot and killed Big Harp. Applause all around. But Little Harp, the one shot by the Army officer a few years earlier, he managed to make a getaway. Oh, as a an aside to this story, the legend has it that, after Big Harp was killed, the husband and the father of the last murder victims decapitated Big Harp and placed his head on a stake at a nearby crossroads. Little Harp befriended a man named Samuel Mason, who was by all accounts a, as dastardly as the Harps and likely made a more than adequate replacement for Big Harp. Mason knew that traders flushed with cash traversing the Natchez Trace from Natchez, to Nashville would be ripe for the plundering. I have this sinking feeling that he didn't have to twist a little Harp's arm too hard to get him to go along. Harp and Mason spent the next few years robbing and killing travelers along the Natchez Trace. Mason was apprehended in 1803, but managed to escape while being transported to Natchez to stand trial. Harp and Mason spent the next few years robbing and killing travelers along the Natchez Trace. Mason was apprehended in 1803, but Managed to escape while being transported to Natchez to stand trial. A reward for Mason was summarily posted in the the classic dead or alive style. Sure enough, two men emerged with the decapitated noggin of one Samuel Mason, hoping to collect the award. There was just one problem. One of the men attempting to collect the reward was identified as Wiley Little Harp. As you can imagine, instead of a bounty, Little Harp was given the news, meeting his end in February of 1804. The Bloody Harps, as they came to be known, are just one of the many tales associated with the Natchez Trace. In subsequent episodes, we intend to explore more of them, hopefully decidedly less bloody. This episode of Strange Wanders was written and researched by Tim Mask and Cole Furlow. Sound design, editing, and narration by Cole Furlow. Strange Wanders is a production of MWP Studios and is sponsored by Visit Mississippi. Please follow, rate, and review Strange Wanders on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Please follow the show at Strange Wanders MS on Instagram and Twitter. You can email us at mwbstudios at mwb.com. And please visit our sponsor at visitmississippi.org. This wouldn't be possible without them. As always, thanks for listening. This podcast produced and distributed by MWB Studios.